blessed to have the final message today by Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, The Cradle of Christianity. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm glad that we are able to be here and uh, not covered in snow. Uh, but uh, it is uh, also uh, not the case in the rest of the country, I, I guess, in, in parts of the U.S., experiencing just incredible weather. And um, I'm glad that we didn't, didn't have uh, as much as, as other places. I want to ask you a question. <clears throat> Has anybody been to Greece? Ah, we've got two that have been to Greece. Awesome. Anybody else? I have never been to Greece. I'd like to go to Greece. Did you go to Athens? Uh -huh. I'm even more jealous now. We Say that again? We oh, you went to Corinth too? Okay. You want to make me feel worse now? <laughs> yeah. Well, so the closest I have come to going to Greece was in London in the British Museum. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, the section in the British Museum, which is, you know, the, the Greek and Roman sections, and I like to go to the British Museum when we're in London and sit amongst the Elgin marbles. You guys have, I think I've mentioned the Elgin marbles before. These are all the marble friezes that the British pinched from the Greeks that used to be uh, in, in Athens. Yeah, at the, the uh, Pantheon, right? And it, they are incredible. I mean, it's like, it's, it's motion, it's beauty, it's, uh, it's a story that is uh, just crafted into marble and stone. And it's amazing to, to see. Uh, but one of the things I like to do when I'm there is to sit and realize that these stones, when they were in Athens, uh, actually heard the voice of Paul. Because it's likely that the passage that we read here in Acts chapter 17 was spoken in front of those carvings um, that, that, uh, that were in that place. So Paul turns to to the men of Athens, to these leaders, to these religious leaders, to the philosophers, to the inheritors of the great Greek philosophers. And he, he says this to them in verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through, I considered the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this description to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives life, uh, gives to all life and breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation, of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries 
of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by the art of man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Very familiar passage. Powerful passage. And there's lots to dig into and, and kind of understand in this, in this passage. But, you know, there's some things that we don't find in this passage. Because, you know, Paul is using the He's using the language of the Greeks. He's using their logic. He's using their reasoning. And he's even quoting from their own sources. And he's communicating the gospel to them through these methods. And he is not referring to one Jewish prophecy. You notice that? He's not referring to Jewish practice of looking for the Messiah. He's actually tailoring his message to the audience. Now, of course, that comes later. We read, you know, later in Romans, the truth of God is not ignored. It's incorporated and included. And, and Paul teaches that uh, to, the, to the Western world and to the Greco-Roman world. But his presentation in this particular moment is genius. He approaches the people of Athens where they are in their culture with the reasoning that they would uh, apply to any religious practice or faith. And, you know, it's not like they were ignorant of the Jewish people and the Jewish faith at the time, right? They would have been aware of it. But what has that got to do with them? How does that relate to them? Well, Paul, of course, is taking a new approach. And, you know, by the fact that he's even presenting himself as Paul and not as Saul of itself, showing that he is tailoring himself. What did he say? All things to all men that he might obtain some. And so he is specifically talking to them in their language and in their community. Paul not even going by his Hebrew name uh, as Saul, as I mentioned. He needed to find common ground, didn't he? Because had he just walked in with the wealth of knowledge of this Jewish faith and then this emerging Christian faith from that, that wouldn't have meant as much to them, I think, as what he actually presented. And the reason Paul did this was because he was not talking to a Judeo-Christian society. And we forget that because we live or have lived 
in a Judeo-Christian society, a Western version of that. But he was not talking to that kind of world. He was talking to a pagan world. He was talking to an anti-truth world, full of a pantheon of gods and all kinds of strange practices, from the benign to the incestuous and to the thoroughly corrupt. And so he was speaking to a completely different world than, let's say, when he was in Jerusalem or in any of the area around Judea. And I wonder if he was alive here today, if we could raise him up and take him out amongst our community, I wonder what he would think of our world. Would he think of our world as being very similar to the culture that he found in Athens and in Rome? I think the answer is yes. I think he would think that we were very similar from a theological and from a social perspective to those people. Case in point, there is an editorial article published uh, on thedailywire.com this past week, <coughs> excuse me, and it was entitled, A Culture Lacking Purpose, The Decline of Religion in the Cradle of Modern Christianity. I'd like to share this article with you. It's not too long, but it's very insightful. And I think it really helps us understand where we are in our culture, in the Western culture, and uh, specifically in the cradle of modern Christianity. The author Ben uh, Zisloft says this, 15 centuries ago, St. Gregory the Great sponsored a mission to the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes, the pagan peoples who had conquered a portion of southeastern Britain now known as England. The somewhat cowardly band of missionaries, which included the man who would soon become the first Archbishop of Canterbury, were surprised to find King Ethelbert, an enthusiastic convert, who led many of his people to embrace the faith which he had already turned, which had already turned much of the world upside down. Over the subsequent centuries, England would produce men such as Don, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, the, the proto-reformers who would translate the scriptures into the vernacular tongue, the Puritans who would produce great theological works and begin to settle British North America, George Whitefield and the Wesley brothers, the proponents of the Great Awakening, William Carey, the founder of modern missions, and Charles Spurgeon, who ranks among the most illustrious preachers of the gospel in human history. For the American Protestant, there has been no greater nation in, the world, in world history, with the exception of ancient Israel itself, for the development and the proliferation of the Christian religion. Millions of believers in Asia, Africa, and Australia would unhesitatingly occur, uh, concur. Yet, the cradle of modern evangelical Christianity is once again descending into deep darkness. For the first time in living memory, and perhaps for more than a millennium, less than half the population of England and Wales call themselves Christians, according to data from the United Kingdom's Office 
of national statistics. So less than half call themselves Christians. But then it gets even more interesting. He says the proportion of people identifying <coughs> excuse me, with Christianity was 46% in last year's census, marking a 13% decline over the course of the last decade. And I mean, that's substantial, isn't it? 13% in just 10 years. I mean, that's less than a generation. So it's not just a generational drift. It's intergenerational rejection or disbelief in, in Christianity. The number of people claiming to have no religion soared from 25% to 37% of the population, while the number identifying as Muslims increased from 5 uh, to nearly 7%. Pastor Reagan King of the Angel Church, uh, a church plant in England, told the Daily Wire he was surprised by the number of people bothering to identify as Christians is still as high as it is. So in his you know, anecdotal experience, he's surprised that it's even that high. Those of us working on the front lines of ministry in England and Wales, he said, evangelize our communities in full knowledge that we are in a post-truth culture. This has led to a, re a real identity crisis where truths once held to be universal and objective are routinely questioned. Central to the decline of the English, Christi English Christianity over the past few centuries has been a lower view of the Bible. The French Revolution and other political phenomena that rocked Western Europe in the 18th century were symptoms of an even more disruptive underlying epistemological shift. The abandonment of <clears throat> an inspired Bible as the basis of morality, ethics, and truth in favor of scientific observation and human reason. In subsequent decades, the concept of absolute truth would be abandoned altogether by many Europeans. Quote, because we increasingly have abandoned God, particularly the God of the Bible, we increasingly don't know who we are, King continued. He said, while <clears throat> legitimate hurt from false and oppressive religious structures has influenced some to discard the idea of any god, more often than not, a hatred of Judeo-Christian moral values has been, has been behind this shift. The result is a society that seems to lack meaning, identity, and purpose, that revels in its own bitterness and dissatisfaction with pretty much everything. I, I mean, that's quite condemning, isn't it? An analysis of several dozen surveys regarding religious attitudes in Britain <coughs> excuse me, has drawn numerous dismal conclusions. Household ownership of the Bible has slumped. Individual ownership is a product of handed down copies or presents and readership and knowledge of the Bible has declined. Accounts central to redemptive, the redemptive arc of the Bible, such as the creation of the world from nothing, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, have been rejected as historically inaccurate or even overtly disbelieved. 
That is the growing common theme. And as we'll see, even amongst those that identify as Christians. King noted that despite nearly half of the residents professing Christianity, less than 10% of people in England and Wales are members of any church. Less than 10%. While only 5% consistently attend services. This is before the discussion of biblical orthodoxy has even been introduced, he said. I would be happy to hear 2% of these are truly Bible-believing and practicing Christians. It is undeniable that churches gravitating towards theological liberalism are primarily dying out. In contrast, independent churches and a couple of networks that are striving after biblical orthodoxy are actually experiencing some growth. So that's interesting. So while the overall biblical liter you know, literacy is declining, those that really want biblical truth and biblical understanding are finding churches, I'd imagine, like us, like our tradition, and, and, and similar in England, and they're actually finding those, those groups. <coughs> The legal protections, the, the article goes on and says that the legal protections that once permitted the preaching of the gospel in England have swiftly been eroded. John Dunn, you may have heard of this story, a veteran of the British Army Special Forces, was prosecuted after he offended and upset members of the public while street preaching. Preaching from the Bible. Just saying what scripture said. And I do know that they were also lying about him, saying that he was yelling at them and causing, you know, saying that they were going to go to hell and being aggressive. And the thing was that he had suffered the throat cancer and had his voice box removed. So there was no yelling. He was whispering the Bible. And he was arrested and prosecuted. And the case against him was dismissed after the two women accused, that accused Dunn failed to appear in court. It's the only reason they got dismissed. Just because they didn't show up for court. Even though a police officer reportedly visited their home in order to encourage their attendance at the hearing. So the police were actively encouraging the prosecution of somebody preaching the Bible. Rather than outright persecution, most residents react to the gospel with indifference and apathy, according to King. The claims of Jesus are truly extraordinary, and walking, uh, and walking according to scripture's truth has the power not only to change individuals, but whole nations, he remarked. Christ's claims deserve consideration, and yet their presentation is often met with a cold shrug of the shoulders. The social and moral decay of the United Kingdom and the embrace, normalization, and celebration of very sinful attitudes and actions influence in this decay. The moral relativism and the denial of any truth as objective mean that discipleship process must of necessity begin without assuming any prior knowledge of the Bible and true Christian faith. You might as well be speaking to those in Athens. Literally, 
because we don't have any common set of understanding and values. They do not understand the word of God inside of just a few generations. It's astonishing. King added, but the nation which once sent evangelists into every corner of the world now needs re-evangelizing ourselves. As the people of England celebrate Christmas, you know, this is, of course, uh, broadly Christian, celebrate Christmas in spiritual darkness, there is still a remnant that points their countrymen to the light of the world. While a difficult process, it is truly beautiful, he says, to see people come from darkness to light. For those of us serving here, the census does not induce despair. It just shows us the people are being more honest about their unbelief and assures us of our need to press on for God's glory in this place. So, <laughs> pretty depressing in a sense. He's trying to be hopeful about it. He's, at least he knows his audience and he knows the condition that they're in and how to you know, approach them with the gospel. But I can speak to this personally because, I mean, every time I go back to England, and Mark, you probably find the same way, it's not the country that we were born in. Not at all. And it's remarkable how quickly the culture and the community has changed. Modern Protestant Christianity is now, without a doubt, not in that place. And the effect on society, uh, I think, is obviously broader than, than I think they realize, and I think sometimes that we realize. The culture is more violent, as I think, as a result, more dangerous. It's more brutal, aggressive, and it is literally a godless place. And I was born there. And it breaks my heart. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's England. That's not the United States. And this country remains a majority Christian country. Well, <laughs> it depends on how you define Christianity. Uh, because if you use the same standard that we're, we're, we were really using to measure true Christianity in England and getting down to maybe... 2% that are biblically literate disciples trying to follow the Bible. But if you use that same standard, the data that is here really may shock you as well. I found an article in a website called the, the Royce Report. It's a Christian news and media outlet. And they looked at a census data that was, uh, or not census data, but an actual uh, Cultural Research Center data from September 2021. And the, the journalist here analyzed that data, similar to the, the article I just read to you from the Daily Wire. He said, today, 176 million Americans claim to be Christians. It's about 69% of the population. Yet only 6% of U.S. adults, which is 9% of those identifying as Christians, actually possess a biblical world view, believing the Bible to be accurate and reliable, among other convictions. 
So about 9% of the population are really actually Bible-believing, Bible-affirming and following Christians. He said that's according to a new study by the research uh, George Barna and the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University in Glendale, Arizona. The study asserts that every person has a worldview defined as intellectual, emotional, and spiritual decision-making filter. And though many Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, very few do. A Barna-conducted study published in May found that 51% of U.S. adults claim to have a biblical worldview, a far cry from the percentage who actually do, according to the latest findings. And I didn't, I didn't want to read this whole other article because it's a lot. Um, but, but some of the things that people were claiming as Christians that they had a, a, a biblical worldview about uh, were such as that they believe that people are inherently good. Now, we'd like to feel that way, right? I mean, everybody wants to feel that everybody is inherently good and there's, there's good in everybody. Well, there is good in everybody, but people are not inherently good. And the Bible tells us that. The human heart is desperately wicked, right? And we need God's word, his truth, his commandments. We need these principles. We need a society based on those principles to shepherd us in the right direction because we are not inherently good. But these are the sorts of things that modern-day Christians, claiming Christians, believe. He said two out of three Americans think of themselves as Christian, and the majority still think Christi Christianity is kind of about the Bible. Barna said in, a, in an interview at the time, but there's a big gap between what self-identified Christians believe the Bible may teach and what the Bible actually teaches. While the latest figures may be shocking to some observers, they are similar to Barna's findings in 2003. At that time, the survey found that 4% of U.S. adults possess a biblical worldview, including 9% of born-again Christians. So England is about 2%. According to this data, the U.S. is about 4 Not a lot better. And, you know, Trevor and I were talking about this article yesterday. We were thinking, well, it's probably below 50%, but not. It's got to be more than 2%. Well, it turns out it's 4%. And that's shocking. I expected it to be higher than that. But why should we be shocked? Why should we be surprised? We've had a larger church community that has for several decades now said grace plus nothing. That has grown in more and more liberalism. And that, well, if we accept more from the outside world, then we can bring them in and then we can change them. And what happens? The outside world changes those churches instead. That's the truth of the matter. And so we've had decades of churches telling people, God's law has been done away with, it's been nailed to the cross, that we don't have to follow any principles anymore or meet any kind of criteria to walk in unison with God. And so we have the information that we have. And we have the level of commitment 
that we can see through this data. And it shouldn't be shocking. But more than all of that, though, Jesus told us this would happen. He told us this would happen. Remember what he said about the unrighteous judge? We tend to focus on the narrative of the unrighteous judge, but there's an interesting piece at the end of it here. In Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, Jesus said this parable to them. He said that that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying there was a certain city, and in that city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continuing, continual coming she weary me. So this unrighteous judge is just like persuaded just to get this woman off my case. I don't want to see her again. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of what she wants. And then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. And then he says this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he really find faith on the earth? If the cradle of Christianity, as this, that article called England, now needs missionaries to come and re-educate it in the way of biblical truth, then we can certainly see, can we not, an environment where this would it be the outcome that Jesus was questioning, if he will find faith on the earth. 30 years ago, it seemed like an impossibility that any of this would be the case, right? We can think back three decades. Uh, We could see the start of some things, maybe. But the acceleration towards a post-truth culture and world is on the fast track. The Christian faith, the faithful believers that follow the word of God, that believe in the infallible truth of the word of God, are now 4% of this country and 2% in England. And, you know, you would think that 4% or 2%, what is that? That's tiny, right? Why would we we garner any attention at all, right? Of all the different groups and religions, why would true Christians really get any attention? Surely we should be able to operate under the radar. Well, you would think that's the case. I'm going to ask Brian to play a video for us. It's about five minutes. Here's an amazing story. Isabel Von Spruce is the leader of 40 Days for Life campaign in Birmingham, England. She's not a terrorist. She's the opposite. She's someone who prays a lot. 
Well, earlier this month, she was praying silently outside an abortion clinic in Birmingham. She wasn't yelling or carrying a sign or blocking the doorway or doing anything disruptive. She was just praying. Praying. Not to the government, to God. And that's not allowed anymore. So police approached her and arrested her and charged her with violating a public space protection order and committing, quote, antisocial behavior. And we're not making this up. It was caught on video. Here it is. Uh, what, what are you here for today? Uh, physically, I'm just standing here. Okay. Why, why here of all places? I know you, you don't live nearby. But this is an abortion something. You praying? I, I might be praying in my head. Um, so I, I'll ask you once more, will you voluntarily come with us now to the police station for me to ask you some questions about today and other days where there are allegations that you've broken public space protection? Uh, if I've got a choice, then no. Okay, well then, you're under arrest. I can't suspicion of failing to comply with the public spaces protection order. Public spaces protection order. Isabel Vaughn Spruce joins us tonight. Isabel, thank you so much for coming on. So the, Thanks the for this me. order is designed, the law is designed to protect public spaces from praying? Well, maybe, maybe if I could give a bit of a background to this. So for 20 years or around that, I've been going outside abortion centers and praying there and offering help to women. I know, you know well over 100 women who've accepted our help and um, continued their pregnancies. Um, but September this year, the local council in Birmingham brought in this censorship zone, this PSPO. Um, formerly, these were used for, for dog fouling and drunken behaviour and things like that. But they're now popping up around the country um, surrounding abortion centres. And they ban behaviour like protesting. Um, but it also names prayer and counselling as forms of protesting. And so for times I went and stood near the closed abortion centre and silently prayed there. And as you can see, the police came and asked me if I was protesting, which I wasn't. They asked me if I was praying, and I said I might be silently praying. Um, I was arrested, I was searched, I was locked in a cell, I was then interviewed or interrogated, however you'd like to see it, um, during which I was quizzed about what I was praying about. Um, I was then released on bail and then subsequently charged on four counts of protesting and engaging in an act intimidating of service users. Um, so I now stand on, on trial on February the 2nd, supported by ADF UK, um, really for, for freedom of thought. Um, and, and the concern is here in England that um, national buffer zones are now being discussed. So there's a possibility of every abortion centre in this country having a similar zone around it. Um, and obviously the implications of that are, are really concerning. If you're arresting people for praying, you are committing an act of evil. It's not a close call at all. There's sort of no debate about that. And I would think that even secular people would recognize that. Did anybody, any prominent person, step forward to defend you? Um, I, I have had a lot of um, people who say they're pro-choice or that they support abortion, but they've also got concerns about this. And, and that in itself is, is very encouraging to hear, um, that it's not necessarily about people who support abortion or don't support abortion. This is more to do with freedom of thought here. Um, it's even gone further than freedom of prayer. I mean, we, we all talk about the, 
the cancel culture and the concerns we have about people being cancelled, um, you know, speaking and, and public, um, maybe public speaking engagements. But to be arresting somebody for what they're thinking, it's just gone even a step further. It's it's just it's actually quite surreal. That's the word I'd use to describe it. I mean, the amount of people who've used the word Orwellian to me to describe this, likening it to the 1984 novel. Um, and, and it's really seemed like that to me from start to finish, and I wish it's not over yet, but it's just quite a surreal experience. Well, it's evil. It's an act of evil. Arresting someone for praying is an act of evil, period. And it just breaks your heart to think of all the people in charge of Prime Minister on down who are standing by and allowing this to happen. And it, um, I'm, I'm just so glad that you did this. I hope you'll continue to do it. That's a human right. They can't take it away from you. And I appreciate your telling us about it on this show. Isabel Vaughn Spruce, thank you. What do you think? Pretty incredible, really. And, you know, there's some aspects here that I think we need to look at honestly. But, uh, you know, this lady is, uh, she's engaged in a ministry around a very politically charged topic, right, of, of abortion. Um, and so, you know, some people might say, well, you know, don't poke the bear. You know, don't get involved in, in that space. But is that really true? Um, because... You know, when are our civil rights most important? It's when it's around politically charged situations, because that's when they get abused. When things are nothing to worry about and there's not really a challenge with a particular situation, then our civil rights are probably not abused, are they? And so these kinds of situations, albeit uh, she's definitely activist, in, in as I think you could say, um, it's pretty scary that a government order, a local government, and another talking about it nationally, can say you shouldn't, or rather you cannot, pray in certain places. Christians have never submitted to that. You look at the early Christian church, they're like, do not pray or heal or do anything in Jesus' name. Yeah, we're, we're going to go do that. We're going to go do exactly that. Real Christians will do that. But we need to be aware, don't we? We need to be aware of the situations that are coming. And uh, I'm grateful we live in Oklahoma and uh, somewhat of the, the buckle of the Bible belt still, right? But, but this is on its way. And it's scary. And it's shocking. And it's angering. And it should not be surprising should not be surprising. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives his very famous account. Very powerful. and it, I like it because it's, it's kind of like the simplified version of end time prophecy, right? This, this revelation, this Daniel, and parts of Isaiah, and so on. But Jesus kind of condenses some things for us and, and, and helps us understand some things. And he says... It says here, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that the disciples came to him privately because, you know, he had already just talked about all the stones of these great buildings in Jerusalem being knocked down. And they were like, okay, you've got to tell us what do you mean and what's going on and what's going to happen. 
And so as he sat in the Mount of Olives, the disciples came and asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. So we have deception coming. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And I know, you know, there's several ways that people read that. To me, I read that as many deceivers coming saying Jesus is the Christ, but they manipulate it and deceive people. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you're not troubled. For these things must come to pass, but yet the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginnings of sorrows. And, you know, we could look at this and, well, I tried to find a stat <laughs> online about how many wars there have been since Jesus spoke these words. And I, I, I couldn't find one. But you, you could go back just the last couple of hundred years and find an incredible number of wars. There have been wars and rumors of wars, and there have been earthquakes, and there have been pestilences and famines. And there have been all of these things. And we certainly know that they will continue. And I think in some ways Jesus is saying, but this is not the end. Because we tend to think that, don't we? Oh, there's a new conflict coming. You know, we were all really, really worried about the Ukraine, and it could still yet get worse. But so far, it hasn't produced a war to end all wars, has it? So I'm not questioning this, but I am saying we need to kind of keep this in balance, that we've had wars and rumors of wars, and they will continue, but the end is not yet. But then Jesus says this in verse 9. And this is where it really gets real. And this is really where it gets to the end of the age. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will wax cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, if we read this passage in the New Living Translation, <clears throat> I think it's clearer, but it's also more chilling. He says, then you will be arrested. Just as that lady was arrested for praying in the wrong place, right? You will be persecuted <clears throat> and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will, will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that nations will hear it 
and then the end will come. The question that comes to my mind, and maybe to yours too, is are we entering into that time frame? Are we entering into the end of the age that Jesus talked about? Well, Christians have been asking themselves that question for a long time, right? And with, with real reasons, real reasons, you know, and, and the early church, I mean, they thought, <clears throat> that was it, man. Jesus is coming back anytime soon. And yet, here we are. But for our culture, for our time, for our experience, it's, it's easy to think that we are stepping perhaps into the end of the age. Because if prayer is considered an offensive act, prayer is protest? And not even verbally spoken prayer, right? Prayer inside your mind. John, are you praying right now? We're going to have to have words. I mean, it's insane. And it's very much reminiscent of what we see in Revelation. You know, seeking to control the hearts and the minds of men. Right? So are we entering into the end of the age? It feels like it. To me, it does. And, of course, I've been wrong plenty of times in my life. So it would not surprise me a bit. Like I said earlier, in less than 30 years, we've moved <clears throat> to where we are now. And we can all think back 30 years, or some of us, most of us, can think back 30 years and remember how society was. So if it can happen in the cradle of modern Christianity, as that article said, then it can definitely happen here, can't it? And there's certainly parts of the country that it's more likely to happen sooner, and we know, we know that. But back to the question. <clears throat> are we entering the end of the age? Personally, I think we probably are. But even if we're not, we're entering into a time of Christian persecution. A time. And if it ends up being just one of the many times in which Christians were persecuted throughout history, then that's God's will. Right? That is in his will. But it may well be the time. The last time. We are living in that post-truth world and a post-biblically moral world, and a world that has grown anti-Christian more and more every day. But a question keeps coming to my mind, and it's this. What would the Apostle Paul tell us to do? Because we look at this situation, we look at examples like that, and there's this isn't isolated. There's been at least three in the last 12 months that have been publicized and recorded uh, in England. So, you know, thinking about that, what would, what would Paul say to us and encourage us in this, in this time to strengthen us, to help us prepare, help us get ready for what's to come? Well, we don't have to guess because he gave us a few letters. And the letter that he gave to Timothy 
I think, which is what Ken started his message with or something similar uh, earlier today, is the letter that I think he would be sending us now. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, he said, look, Timothy, you need to know this. <laughs> Almost as though I haven't really shared with this with you before, but <laughs> you need to know this. That in the last days, there will be very difficult times. <clears throat> and I'm reading from the, the uh, New Living Translation. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. You know, it would be a time when a police officer might see somebody standing on the sidewalk praying and step around and give them some space because that's a sacred thing to do. But now, in the wrong place, according to the authorities, you'll get arrested. Nothing is sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends. They will be reckless puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, or you could even say pious, right? Self-righteous. But they will reject the power that could actually make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with guilt, with guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Mo Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith, but they won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. Now, he's kind of given us a promise, isn't he? We're going to suffer persecution. That's okay. That is what we're called to do, then that's what we'll do. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things that you have been taught. You know they are true. We know them, don't we? We know Paul's words. We know the lessons he's given us. We know Jesus' words. We know the depth of the truth of the, of the gospel and of God's word showing us all these life examples through the life of Israel. We have all of this truth. We've validated it. 
Now we just have to trust it. Hold on to it. Continue in it. You know they are true. You know that you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. What is that work? What is that good work that he has equipped us to do? Could it be for us to be the cradle of Christian faith? To be the cradle of Christianity? Because the old cradles are gone. And so God is making new cradles. He says into chapter 4, he's he's continuing the same thoughts, the same ideas. He says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Preach the word, even if they tell you to shut up and sit down. Preach the word. In season... Be prepared, whether it is in the time favorable or not. You know, it's easy to preach God's word to you guys. You're generally not going to throw rocks at me. But there will be a time when we have to preach it, and rocks will come. Maybe before we even get the words out. And he says we need to preach it, favorable times or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, encourage Encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when they will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of the suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. He's given each one of us a ministry. If his word dwells in us, if his spirit dwells in us, we have a ministry. We have a work. And we need to get to work on that. As Ken touched on earlier, we need to teach our children. First and foremost, we need to teach one another and our children in this community that we have and arm them against the post-truth world that they will enter into. We need to share the gospel. We need to tell them about the gospel. And we need to tell them in a way that they'll understand. So we cannot come from a common framework. We have to go to where they are because they don't know the Bible. They don't know. The word of God. It's sad, but that's where we are. We have to tell the world that Jesus is king and Caesar is not. And the king of kings will be returning soon. So we have to tell them that good news. That good news 
of the kingdom of God coming to the earth. Restoration of all things. Share with as many that will listen that we are all going to be set free. Free to worship God. Free from the enemy that is so oppressive and so trying to trip us up. Free to pray to God. Free to receive his blessings. This is what we have to carry in us. This is what we have to bring to the world, to our neighbors, to anybody that we can pin down long enough to listen. We are the cradle of Christianity.